Well, we're in John 10, and we want to look at the end of this. And we've uh, seen our reading this morning in verse 22 throughout the end of the chapter. Uh, and uh, um, that's what we'll look at today. Let me ask you, uh, start this way by asking you a question. How well do you, uh, how well do you know Jesus? I used to love Bible trivia when I was a kid, and I would be able to answer all the questions that would um, that would be asked of that vacation Bible school and other venues. And I remember one uh, Presbyterian um, gentleman who was being ordained into the presbytery, which asked real substantial questions to their candidates. Uh, and one of the questions was, "Who was Abraham's second wife uh, after Sarah died?" Uh, And what was the name of his children? Well, the Bible tells us, but uh, we probably gloss over that part when we get to there. And needless to say, how well do you know Jesus? Many of you have been raised in church your whole life. Uh, Some of you are newer to Christianity or the Christian faith or maybe uh, curious about what the Bible says about Jesus. How well do you know him? And the question to follow up with that, does he ever surprise you? Is there ever a moment when you contemplate the reality of who Jesus is that you're overwhelmed at the concept of Him? Just in the Bible's record, not some book you pick up that kind of helps you weed through the, the all and puts all the passages together in a cohesive form. When you read the Bible, does it ever bring you to a place of being overwhelmed by who He is? Does he still amaze you? Some of you have been saved 50 years, 40 and 30, and maybe even longer than that. Does Jesus still amaze you? Some of you have been saved five years, and you could answer the question. Does he ever ask of you or demand of you by virtue of who he is all of who you are? You said these are some random questions to ask, but it just reminds us that the Bible brings us to this reality, almost to the brink of our understanding of who Christ is, and says, just look out into the expanse of the reality of His person, His grandeur, His majesty, and just know He is much, much more than what you can take in. I was telling the story of Jonah uh, to one of my to my youngest son, not one of my kids, he is one of my kids, and I was telling him about Jonah being a prophet sent from God, and I said, you know, God had sent out another prophet better than Jonah. Uh, in many ways, where Jonah failed, this prophet succeeded. And I said, his name is Jesus, and he says he's not a prophet. I said, yes, he was, but he was more than that. He was a king, and not only is he king, but he is. He is a high priest, and I kept on and on because he kept saying, and what? And what? And just to be honest with you, my mind went dry. I I ran out of things to say, and to, or or to answer to that question, and what? Because he is inexhaustible. There's something amazing about him. We think of his presence, his provision, his comfort. We speak of his nature, his love, and his forbearance. Tell of his coming, his kingship, his holiness, And even after all of that, you will find there is still more to be said and to be known about Jesus. If we're honest, Paul's words may seem lost on us as some fanatic, some some extremist, that we, we want to be like, Paul, we love you, we're thankful for what you told us, but there's places you go that I just don't know if I'm there. Now, I know you won't say that, so I'm saying it for you up here. Like when Paul speaks of his greatest ambition in life and and desire in life in Philippians 3, he speaks of it in the language of, of what I really want out of all the pursuit is to know him. Or elsewhere when he says, after all, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Summing up the whole of his existence, the whole of who he is, with the reality of the the majesty and the person of Jesus. There's reasons, I think, that we don't always line up with Paul. 
One, it may be sheerly due to the fact of ignorance. Now, we don't like that word, and so I'll hurry and explain what I mean by that. We just don't know what we don't know. We don't know Him by virtue of we, we don't understand anything about Him. We've never sat down and contemplated Him. No one's ever taught us or, or raised us up in an environment where they've set before us Jesus and, and explained Him to us. We just don't know. There's an element of, of not knowing, of ignorance. Or it could be, I think it is oftentimes in our society, spiritual laziness. That is, we're happy to pursue many things in this life, but we are not happy to pursue Him ourselves. In fact, we, we're, we're, we're great with knowing what little bit we know about Jesus, content with that, and leave the rest of it to well, the professionals. That's what they get paid for. Pastor so-and-so and Dr. so-and-so. And so we have this kind of pressure of, of our own laziness. We're not geared that way, we say, and excuse it as if it's some good excuse. Now, I'm not saying that you're here that way this morning. I'm saying probably somebody that isn't here this morning that deals with that, and maybe not you. You can answer that before God. But I think there is another reason that haunts us just as much. And that is that spiritual warfare that Paul mentions in Galatians, that spirit warring with the flesh, that fighting one another, the flesh warring with the spirit, one seeking to satisfy itself and, and uphold itself in, in sensual earthly pleasures and pursuits, sinful pleasures and pursuits against the Spirit of God who has come to illuminate and work out the nature and beauty and magnificence of Christ in us. And so while we come to the subject of who Jesus is this morning and the Bible brings us back to these, these glorious truths, we come out of necessity because we must be reminded the world is big. Our sinful impulses are oftentimes larger than we can handle and our, our need is desperately to see again the magnificence of our Savior. In fact, John's gospel is a great help to us, a medicine to the weary traveler in this world by showing us the beauty and the glory of Christ. And we saw that at the very introduction when he says, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father. And the whole gospel from beginning to end is setting for us, setting before us, that here is a man, here is someone more than we could have ever imagined. In fact, that's really what the tension here is in our text uh, that we read. When they asked the simple question, they were looking for a Messiah, and, and at the end of Jesus' response, they pick up stones willing to put him to death, charging him with blasphemy. You see it in verse number 24, don't you? He says, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And so he spends his time unveiling that for us. And at the heart of their question, they're asking him, who are you? What are you doing here? Why are you doing what you're doing in all of this and saying what you're saying? And and no doubt they understood something special about this man. But who is Jesus? In fact, that's the most important question we could ever answer for ourselves. And maybe you have been asked this in, uh, in some time in your past. Who is Jesus to you? And by that we mean, at least I think we mean, I interpret it to mean this. Uh, who is Jesus to you in, in the way of how are you related to him? How do you square up with him? Because to answer that question rightly, we must understand who is Jesus according to the Bible. We must have a foundation and understanding of who Jesus is. We start with a biblical description. And I want to walk through some of that this morning with you out of this section as we consider Jesus. And of course, as we consider it, you come to the end of the conclusion. I'll go ahead and tell you now and you can zone out and won't have to worry about it. He's much, much more than we can fathom. Well, first, I want to just mention that Jesus is, he is someone. 
He is flesh and blood. He's a human. He's a person. We notice that sometimes we can look at the Bible. It's so old and it's so so dusty and, and it's been around and, and argued so long. We can, we can come to the Gospels and we can wonder, well, is this thing even reliable? Is this even trustworthy? It, you know, Jesus may or may not have been, but the Bible tells us plainly that Jesus is a person. He's a man. We see even his detractors, those who are against him, are willing to stone him, admit the reality that Jesus was flesh and blood standing in front of them. Notice at the end of verse number 33, Jesus answered them, Why are you about to stone me? But they, they said, It's not for the things that you done necessarily, but for blasphemy, because you being a man made yourself God. Now we'll look at that second part in a moment, but we must admit, first of all, that Jesus is a man. He's human. And John reminds us in 1 John 1, one, at the opening of his gospel, that which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now what is he saying when he says that? He's saying this is not a phantom. He's not telling you something they made up or something that he got second hand. This is not about, uh, about hearing it all the way down the line 30, 40, 50 years later. He says we've seen him with our very eyes. We've laid hands on him. We had fellowship with him. We ate with him. We laughed with him. We've ministered with him. He was a, he was a man. He was a human. He was a person. Not a force, not a phantom, not an idea, not a power. Uh, he was a person. He is a person. In fact, there must have been something going on in those days when John wrote his, his epistle because one of the teachings of the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist was confessing that Jesus only looked like a person. He wasn't really human. In fact, John says, verse... 2 and 3 of chapter 4, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And I think that's pretty easy for us to understand that Jesus is human. He had pain receptors. He had nerve endings. He felt. He grew. He had a family. He ate. He slept. He was tired. He walked this life and experienced in, as the old divines would say, as very man or truly man. He was human. We know that it was necessary for him to take and become flesh and blood. But the second thing we notice in our passage in verse number 24, not only was he human, but he was the Messiah. And they're asking him this question, tell us if you are the Christ or the Messiah. And the term is the same, it, it simply means the anointed one. Are you him or should we look for another? John the Baptist even asked the question, in which if you've been following along in our study in John, it was the woman at Samaria in the well that he told that I am him. And so far, he had been talking to them in metaphors about shepherd and sheep and thieves and robbers and fences and gates and all this other stuff. And they, they said, tell us plainly. And he's been explaining to them back in Ezekiel thirty four twenty three, if you want to cross-reference, that when God says he will shepherd his people, the agent that he will use will be that servant of David. Let me just read the verse here for you. And he says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus is simply claiming that fulfillment is found in him. He is the promised king, the promised Messiah, the promised one who would come. Now, I know we're far removed from this kind of expectations. We're, we're only familiar with that because we've been in church and we're surrounded by it. And Jesus, we, we say his name is Jesus Christ. And so it, it connects us with this. But it was not our original expectation. We were not looking for a Messiah. Not in the promises necessarily that the Jews, those in, in living in Jesus' day, were anticipating. And for them, it meant some anointed king or some anointed leader. And later on, as you read the prophets, it became uh, to be this prophetic hope of a promised ruler or deliverer that would come and, 
and deliver and usher in that great kingdom. One source says this, uh, speaking about the Messiah and the Jews, it fell into two, two realms. One, the, the Jews were looking for a human king and a military leader who would come and deliver Israel from their national enemies. Think of Rome, Greek, and all the other Gentile nations. They were looking for a military leader. Well, Jesus didn't fit that description in their minds for many of them. There was also the mystical aspect of the Messiah as they were considering a transcendent, part divine, part human, who would establish the kingdom of God on earth. So when you look at the Messiah and they're asking him this question, are you the king of Israel? Are you the king that's supposed to come, the deliverer to deliver the nation of Israel? In essence, he told the Samaritan woman, yes, I am him. And here he's explained to them in a metaphor that I am the shepherd that God has set over the house of Israel to shepherd my sheep. But there's something amazing in the reality. He is much more than just some, some geographical location king promised to some small nation in the Middle East. In fact, what we find is he is the king of creation. Not only is he the Messiah and he's a man, but he is the inheritor of all things. To say it another way, all things belong to him. In Revelation nineteen sixteen, we have that glorious image of Jesus Christ coming back. And as he comes back, all of the splendor and and glory that, that could be said about him, and, and going into battle, defeating his enemies, his foes. And, and it says that he's bearing a name, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It isn't just over one particular nation. Psalms 2 reminds us that God will give him the nations as his inheritance. He's not just king over some small plot of dust and dirt and desert in the Middle East. He is king over all of creation. He is the ultimate sovereign Lord. And sometimes we think, well, that's good, that's Jewish, and that's all that. And people want to kind of be attractive to Christianity. What obligation? What's that to me? It's none of my business. I'm here in America. I'm here in this place. And And it's none of my heritage, but the reality is it affects all of us because he is king over everything. Everything belongs to him. Everything is his, including not only his rule, but judgment. He is the Messiah, but he was much more. But not only is he the Messiah and king of creation... He is, and what they're about to accuse him of here, and blasphemy, he is God. Isn't that remarkable to think? Notice verse number 30 through 33. He speaks about this. We'll go back a few verses. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And if you're in Christ, that ought to be underlined. Now, I'm not telling you to write in the Pew Bible, which you can if you want. It's a good verse to write in the Pew Bible. But that's a beautiful statement. And why is it so beautiful? Not because it's a wishful thought of somebody saying, I think so well of you, I'm going to keep you in my heart always. That's kind of sappy a little bit and, and sort of nice and make a great card if you want to do that but because he is able to commit those who have put their faith and trust in him. They will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my, and we could say omnipotent, mighty hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. There's that, that communion, that fellowship between the Father and the Son, and our security rests on that, right? And then he says in verse number 30, I and the Father are one. And so Jesus answered them, I've showed you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Now in the context, this statement in verse number 30, I and the Father are one, he is declaring to us, as far as keeping the sheep secure, he and the Father are on the same page. They're, they're in agreement. They're working together together. 
They're in perfect harmony and fellowship in that outworking of redemption. Those whom the Father gives him, he offers his life, dies for, gives them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. So there's, a, there's agreement in that word, but what we see in the Gospel of John, there's something much more going on in this passage where, where Jesus in being one with the Father is elevating himself. And, and this is the second time that they seek to kill him because he was making himself equal with the Heavenly Father. Uh, some people have said Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, tell the Jews that. Twice they tried to put him to death for the accusation. Why is it such a big deal? Well, because of the fact that there is only one God. Any of you that made it through Genesis and Exodus and, and all those other books and, and got through Deuteronomy and your Bible reading this year before you realize you probably should start over or however you end up doing it. You realize when you get to Deuteronomy chapter number 6 verses 4 and 5 there's that great statement of faith which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. One God. Not many gods, not a lot of gods, not one of many gods, but there's just one God. In fact, Isaiah is, is explicit about this over and over throughout the, the prophetic work of Isaiah. I'll just give you two verses just for time's sake. It says in chapter 43, verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Thus says the Lord in chapter 44, verse 6, The King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no what? God. There's none else. This is just Him. That's it. Isaiah 6, it's just Him on the throne. There's nobody else. It's not a, it's not a senate. Him, chiefly supreme. In fact, the nation of Israel felt the, felt the pain and the results and consequences for chasing after rocks and stones and all of these demonic figures in the world as they sought to worship them. It was because of their paganism that they went off into captivity and so on it goes. And here comes a man saying, I am the father of one. That's a pretty big deal. And yet turn with me to John 1. And what we find in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is and was very much like us. He was human. We already spoke about that. He had a mother. He had brothers and sisters. He had, a, he had an earthly father. He wasn't his biological father, but Joseph who took care of him. He was very much like us, but he was very much unlike us. Consider what John says here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Um, uh, honestly, it's hard not to just read all of that chapter because it is so beautiful description of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There was and is a current movement, uh, apostolic movement referred to as Jesus only. Some of you may have heard it. It's a form of modalism as they teach that uh, Jesus was once the Father in heaven and eternity past. And in the Old Testament, the New Testament came and he became the Son. And, uh, and then God, after that, becomes the Holy Spirit. And what they've done is they've said it's just one person and one God. And so that makes the math work out pretty good. And yet it is a heresy and not at all what the Bible teaches. It is a misunderstanding, a gross misunderstanding of what the Bible is saying. Notice what he says here in John 1 again. In the beginning was the Word. We see the Word there. The Word was what? It was with God. There, there's a communion there. The reality there in the language is it was face to face, beholding the face of one another with God, and the Word was God. How do you deal with that? Well, you just read it and believe it because that's what it says. I hate to say that. I know you want a more sophisticated answer, but I don't know what to tell you. Other than the Bible says the Word was with God, 
a distinct person. There's two people being talked about here. There's, there's God, and we, we look at that, the Father, and there's the Word, the divine Word, and they're face-to-face in fellowship and communion before anything ever was. And this Word was not less than God, not a subordinate view of God, as some teach in our day, that, that He's kind of a smaller deal. The Father's the big deal. He's a smaller deal. Still a big deal, but not as big of a deal as the Father. He's not saying that. In fact, he's very careful, and Paul does as well, to make sure that when we come away from this and we contemplate the person of Jesus Christ from eternity past, that our minds is overwhelmed with the reality of his bigness and his, his, his nature. He was God. Is God. I know we talk about past tense. Let me just bring it into the present. You see, he was with God and was God. And, and so we say, well, explain what you mean by that. John, tell us a little more. So he does, doesn't he, in verse number 3. Not only was he in the beginning with God, in case you didn't get the with earlier, he says it again. Verse number 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who made it? Who made the mountains you love? Well, you can, we could be a participation activity this morning. Jesus made it, didn't he? Who made the stars that we cannot count and calls them all by name? Who made the fish in the sea and the laws of gravity? And who made all this stuff work together to sustain human life? He's saying that 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 which can only be attributed to God, which is creating all things and existed before all things was made, is, is also contributed to Jesus himself. He was God. He was man. It's, all, it's, it's beautiful illustration. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. His sympathy and his, his kindness displayed towards us and uniting us with the Father. But, but our minds are to, are to go further and deeper and higher to be reminded that he was God too. Overwhelmingly so. Now some of you say, well, I'm well aware of the Bible's claims about Jesus. Thank you for the reminder. Tell us something new. Well, there's nothing new to say in some ways. And my desire this morning for you is the same desire I have for myself, that setting before me the reality and the beauty and the bigness of Jesus Christ, that it might deepen, it may deepen my devotion to him and my wonder about him and my love for him. Consider again the words in Colossians chapter number 1. Colossians 1, just a few books on over, beginning in verse number 15, Paul agreeing with John when he says he is, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. That's, that's preeminence there. And in him all things hold together. Think about that for a moment. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What is Paul telling us? He's saying that this Jesus of Nazareth, that he preached this gospel message, which was sent out to Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians and Philemon and Crete and all the other parts of the earth, was a a message about a man who lived this life sinlessly, who died on a Roman cross, rose the third day from the grave, and he is much, much more than you could ever comprehend. Because he was not just merely a man. He was not just merely someone who had connected with the divine in a good way or a right way or had some insight in life. He himself was God. In fact, he says that Jesus and he alone is the divine representation of God on earth. 
God who was invisible in the Old Testament, seen in shadows and visions and forms. He says, here, you want an image. You were so fond of images in the Old Testament. Here's you an image of God, and that is Jesus Christ walking among you who created all things, every species, every kind, every law that governs this system, the system itself which supports and maintains life for humanity, the depths of the solar system, and by that virtue alone of His creative work and power ought to exact from us, ought to call from us praise and thanksgiving for eternity. You're not here by accident. You're not just some random mistake in this life. And it doesn't matter what situation your parents were in and how you were conceived or whatever that brought about your existence into this world. You were created by Him for Him. That's what He says. It was not only made by Him, but all things were created for Him. Now there is something unique in this statement here that he makes in Colossians, which I find fascinating. Not only were they made for him, and you would sit there and wonder, does the world know that? Does society know that the world was made for him? Creations, nations, peoples, all their distinctive ethnicities, uh, animals, and and everything that God has created made to, to glorify and magnify him? Oh, we have lost our purpose. When Adam fell in the garden, so we fell with him, losing our purpose and vision of life and what it was meant to be. But not only does all things created through him, by him, sustained. I like that end of verse number 17. If you're there, you can look at it with me. He says in... He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Do you know He sustains everything by the virtue of His will? One professor years ago made the statement as we were going to taking a class on the pastoral epistles, and he's like, you want to know why the world just doesn't fly apart and you fall off of it as it's spinning around and around? He says, because Jesus willed it so. And you say, well, that's just religious mumbo-jumbo. There's gravity and all that other stuff. Who created that? Jesus. God. In fact, we find the maintenance and continuation, not just of creation itself, but the continuation of the ages. The time which creation goes through, the generations, the flow of nations, the passing of time, your life and my life, the days are upheld and carried forward by Him. Do you believe that? Things are difficult. And it feels like we're about to fly apart. Do you not know He who sustains the heavens? He who sustains His creation can also sustain your life as well. Well, before his incarnation, the Son was, is very God, possessing the same essence of the Father. You can turn back with me to the Gospel of John, if you would. Same essence as the Father and the Holy Spirit, that beauty and mystery of God in Trinity. In fact, when we look through the Old Testament and we see the grandeur of God being displayed... We are reminded not only does that say it of God, but of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All it's meant to stretch our minds of how magnificent and wonderful this Savior really is. In fact, um, it will be mentioned later on in John 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, speaking of the glory of of Jesus and spoke of him and most all commentators tell us that what he's saying there is back in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up he was seeing he's seeing the pre-incarnate Christ in all of his splendor and glory what I'm trying to tell you people is Christ is amazing magnificent beyond our comprehension let me just give you a a few little uh, bullet points that may 
I flesh this out a little bit more, five of them if you're into, into numbers and things like that. And the first of which is you will never be able to, be able to, to get to the depths and span the full mystery and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the very fact that he loved us being so high and lofty and us being so rebellious and unlovable should be enough to carry us along for the rest of our lives to stand in mystery and amazement at what he is and what he's done, who he is. His humiliation, we could go on and on. His securing work, nothing will separate us from the love of God, from Christ. even says here, no one will snatch you out of my hand or no one will snatch you out of my Father's hand because your life and your hope and your future, if you're in Christ, Jesus is secured by his omnipotent hand and he has no equal. There is no equal. And even now interceding and enabling grace-giving work that we find in Jesus Christ. But secondly, not only do we see there's a depth we will never fully understand, secondly, it is our privilege to spend our life searching these things out. Isn't the knowledge of God in itself life-giving? If I could say anything that you take home with you, that whatever you know of God... There's more to know and more to see. And it is our joy and privilege to search these things out. And some of you, are in a, you're in a season of life, part of the journey where a great deal of time has passed. That's a gracious way of saying, well, you fill in the blank. But can I tell you, Jesus is still sweet. He's still life-giving. It's still worth the meditation and the thought and the time and the pursuit. Even if it's a reminder of the things we already know. And it is our joy and privilege to search these things out. Some of you young people here are going off to college. Some of you are in the middle of life and and the throes of, of raising kids and all of that. Can I say there's never, there's never a time wasted meditating and contemplating on the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. It is the very strength that we need, the endurance that He gives to us, the, the very heart of our sanctification in Second Corinthians chapter number 3, beholding His face, the glory of God, we are being changed from one level of glory to another. But thirdly, not only is it our privilege to search these things out, but, but notice the comfort and confidence that we, that we receive in it. As he tells his sheep and speaks about wolves and thieves and robbers coming, he says, don't you know I know those who are mine. I call them all by name and, and I secure them and not just I but my Father and the Holy Spirit. We perfectly agree in this work and in will. There is no division in the Trinity. There's no freelancers. Fourthly, this should eradicate our sloppy and casual view of him, of Jesus. He is God, gloriously so, sovereign, uncomparable, infinite, majestic, and a thousand other attributes and adjectives that we could spend the rest of this day contemplating and explaining. He is worth giving a lifetime to. knowing and serving him. I don't know American history very well, but there was some guy that was famous for saying, I regret to only have one life to give for my country. Would more Christians have enough uh, passion and resolve and desire in their own life concerning serving Christ as that man did trying to establish a nation? I regret that I only have one life to live in service for my master because he is worthy of it. Doesn't it push against that idea of cultural Christianity, fake and shallow, and, and it speaks of Jesus and religion in, in a good way, in a nice way, but, but the main thing is going on about business as normal in this world. 
Be abnormal. Normal is awful. Normal is crazy in the day we live in. My current comment on the culture. But isn't that the way it is in our life? Don't we relegate just a small portion of our time on Sunday morning or, or some other appointed time and the rest of our days this throughout the week, the rest of the days of our life, we're spent just kind of focused on ourselves and void of any, any presence of God in our life. It's like we come to check in and see how Jesus is doing on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. And I'm not trying to beat you up because you're here on a Sunday morning. I'm glad you're here. I, I love you. I want to encourage you. But what I'm saying is he, is he is infinitely greater than what that kind of Christianity promises you. Don't spend your week acknowledging Him just a little part of the day and the rest of your week devoid of Him in your word and deed. Isn't that fleshed out in that lack of time we spend in God's word and in prayer? And it's seen in our activities and the things we do throughout the week. Let me ask you, is it not true that men pursue, women pursue and will spend themselves for the things that they think they value that are most important? Oh, we know it's true in the, in, by way of pleasure. We know it's true by the way of sport and by way of success or business or family or whatever. We, we pursue those things because we see in them value of some sort. And our problem as creatures, we tend to put them over the value we see and the beauty we see in God. And, and I just want to tell you this morning, if God could do anything in your heart and my heart, get that, get that arranged right. Because no one's ever wasted their life pursuing Christ or have not found Christ in the process pursuing them, as Paul says in Philippians 3. In short, I could sum up these five things this way. It should stir us to worship. Seeing Him for who He is should, should fill our hearts with, with thankfulness and our lips with praise. Sometimes I feel awkward when we sing, don't you? How many of you feel that way? Come on. Let's... Confession time. You feel awkward? Raise your hand. See, you even feel awkward raising your hand now when I'm asking you to raise your hand. But, you know, you sing and you're like, do I raise my hand? Do I not raise my hand? What are they saying behind me? Did I wear deodorant? I don't, I mean, you got all these things going on in your mind. What I want to say is that ought to be a place in a believer's life where you come back to this reality that our life should seek to worship Him. And it is the delight to let our lips sing forth His praise. I like sitting up front. You get to hear everybody and it drowns me out. Worshiping praise of our lips, thankfulness on our hearts, and devotion in our deeds as we offer ourselves to Him. Well, that's who Jesus is. Let me wrap up with this second thought in this passage. It will not be as, as lengthy. You shouldn't say amen there. They help you practice to say amen. You got to help me preach sometimes. A magnificent Savior we have. Standing in the face of his enemies. And you know what you see here in John chapter 10? You see such resolve, such long suffering and forbearance. Well, they want to stone him. We know that, and, and we've mentioned that. And, and it's because he made himself God. And so Jesus, as one, one writer said, he, he offers a diversion or diffuses the situation, takes them to Psalms 82, and, and he says, well, it's in the Bible. If, if he called them God who received the word of God, maybe it's the rulers of the nation of Israel. There's debate on that. Um, it's not important at this point. But, but if he called them God, then, then how is it inappropriate for the one God sent into the world to be called the Son of God. I'm basically saying it's not inappropriate at all. But notice what he does in verse number 37. Standing in the face of his enemies who seek to kill him, he, he pleads with them. He offers to them an invitation. Uh, isn't that remarkable? What do you do with your enemies? What do you offer them? Rock, 
rock of the tongue, you know, you, you, you slayer, throw those things at him. You offer, you offer violence or, or you meet strength with strength, whatever it may be. Those who, who are willingly against him and yet the forbearance of our Lord and Savior who, who's standing among those who do not believe, many of will not believe, the leaders, and yet he, he brings them in again. He says, work this out. See it for yourself. The gospel is not some fanciful doctrine. It may be foolishness to the world, but it's not illogical. It makes sense. Put the pieces together. Come and believe. Maybe you don't like me, says in essence here, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, and then do not believe me if I was just coming and saying all this stuff to you, but He is doing the works of His Father. Blind people are seeing Lame people are walking. I mean, he's doing the works of his father. There's undeniable reality that he's doing the works of his father. Notice verse number 38. But if I do them, which he is doing them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. What is he saying? Work it out. Work it out. You know God's not scared about your questions. The Bible is not a house of cards waiting to fall apart when you ask the first question, is this true? In fact, it's taken more scrutiny, more abuse, and more twisting over the past 2,000 and even more years, and it still stood the test of time saying, this is what it says, and here it is. In some way, we come back to that reality in our own lives that, that he's calling us to work it out. These eyewitness accounts of Jesus coming into the world and all the things that He did and how they line up with what was prophesied about Him. This is who He is. What will you do with Him? And the question is, will you be honest in, in the pursuit? If it is pointing Him to be God and the Christ and the Promised One, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords, then will you honestly follow through with what was preached last week and that is repent and believe the gospel and be saved? In fact, what you find out, if Jesus hadn't blowed their mind this far, and the next chapter is really going to do it when Lazarus comes back from the dead. And he's saying, work it out. Let me ask you a question. Have you understood the gospel? Do you know why Jesus came into the world? The need of the gospel? That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. And because of that, we're at enmity with God and the, the judgment of God, the wrath of God abides upon us. And Paul says in another place that we're by nature children of wrath because we have sinned against Him and God is a righteous, holy God. That's not the gospel. That's the why the gospel. And, and because of this and out of God's abundant love and mercy sends His Son into a world hostile against Him to walk who never sinned, never lied, never never treated his neighbor wrong, always honored the Father and loved the Father. And this very Son sent into the world to die as the grossest and vilest of all sinners. In fact, as he hung there on the cross, he died for the very sins that you have committed in your life. His death was not aimless. It was not political treason. It's not because the religious people hated him. His death was purposeful. It was to, to be the propitiation, to be the substitute, to satisfy that wrath of God which laid upon you. And laid upon me. And Jesus came and died, not aimlessly, not purposelessly. But he came for a purpose so that he might redeem those who are under the law. He died so that you and I might have that great gift of forgiveness. That's the blessed reality that we celebrate even tonight. Communion, isn't it? Forgiveness. Now, the words at times, I forgive you, may seem cheap, but it is never cheap in the relationship between God and man. He extends it to us through faith in Christ, but this extending to us and faith in Christ is a demonstration of great sacrifice and love. 
And he rose again the third day to prove not only that we need forgiveness, but that we need a new life in Christ Jesus. Our old ways are not working. Our old sins and old habits are, are no longer to be walked in, but by the power of his resurrection to give us new life in him. And to vindicate that this was God's infinite, wise, loving, great, grand plan. Do you understand the gospel? In some ways it's not complicated, is it? Well, there's a thousand things you could say, but even little children walk through the narrow gate into the kingdom of God. Without difficulty. Do you know why Jesus come? Why he died? Why he rose again? Can you be honest with the answer when the Bible calls men to repent and believe? They that call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? But understanding that, why would you not call on him? Why would you remain outside of him and, and to bear the consequences of being separated or alienated from God? Do you understand why will you not believe? Put the pieces together. And some people do say in our world, and, and some of us wonder, we live in a time that is not as, as, as blessed as the time in Jesus' day. I would say that's wrong. And John wants to highlight that. Because we think if Jesus was doing the very things that he did in those days, then there would be a revival in this world. And then people would be coming in droves to, to see Jesus and believe in Jesus and trust Jesus and, and and yet the response that he gives from those who've seen the mighty works that he done is continually of unbelief. So what about our day? And I think John puts this in as a caveat to his readers who's 40 years or so past Jesus' ascension to remind them the things that they long for, what, what really produces faith Belonging. Notice verse number 40 to 42. He went away and rode across to Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Well, Christians, let me just say, and I know many of you have lost loved ones, people in your life that are not walking with the Lord, well, it's never a fool's errand or hopeless to give them Christ. Share the word of God with them. To magnify and make much of him. Let John the Baptist's motto be yours. I must decrease and he must increase because it is in the, the preaching and the sharing and the giving of the gospel. Our lives need to accompany that and, 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 and not distort that the way we live and interact with them. But, but it's never a fool's errand to share and give the gospel and testify to who he is. Isn't it remarkable that John adds that in verse 4? 41, John did no signs, but everything that John said about this man was true, and because of John's witness, many believed. It said another way, those who believed John had no problem believing Jesus. And if you believe the word of God, then you'll have no problem believing the gospel. If it's true, if the Bible is true, and it is true, and the gospel is the grand, great message of it for you to receive by faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for such a magnificent Savior. And the time we could contemplate on him in Jesus' name. Amen.